Hello, and welcome to episode 98 of On Liberty, coming to you live from the Center for Independent Studies in Sydney, Australia. I'm your host, Salvatore Babonis, and joining me today is Peter Gregory, author of the CIS analysis paper, The Territory Gap, Comparing Australia's Remote Indigenous Communities. We'll asking, be asking Peter how remote Indigenous communities compare across Australia. Peter Gregory, how are you? Oh, I'm very good. Thank you so much for having me on today. It's terrific to be here. Oh, thanks for joining us. Um, spoiler alert for the audience. Uh, Peter, you find that remote Indigenous outcomes are best in the you know, lower states, worst in the Northern Territory by far. What are the states getting right that the Northern Territory is getting wrong on Indigenous affairs? Yeah, that's right. So, uh, you know, if you, if you do want to read the report, you don't want the ending ruined. Uh, look away <laughs> now. But um, no, so what we found was that the Northern Territory was much worse than the other states. The states we looked at was New South Wales, Queensland, South Australia and Western Australia and the Northern Territory. Uh, and the reason we chose those places was because they all have significant um, Indigenous populations in remote and very remote areas. So right. what we were comparing was remote and very remote areas in the Northern Territory and um, to remote and very remote areas. In other places. So, so to be clear, the fact that there are lots of Indigenous people living in metropolitan Sydney and Melbourne, that, that's not clouding your analyses. No, that doesn't have any impact on it because, it, it, as you rightly point out, there are a lot of Indigenous people in metropolitan areas and that's those people are a lot better off than Indigenous people living in remote areas and very remote areas. So that's why we selected remote and very remote areas. Um, and what surprised me was just the size. Like I, had, I sort of thought that maybe the territory would be worse off um, if I had to choose. Kind of my head, I would have chosen the Northern Territory, right. but it was miles off. Like private home ownership was seventy-seven percent worse in very remote Northern Territory than the average of the other four states that we looked at. Unemployment was fifty percent worse, or over fifty percent worse. Uh, in very remote areas, median income was twenty-eight point five percent worse in very remote areas. Um, I should point out that this data is from the 2016 census because that's the last publicly available data that yeah. um, disaggregates by remoteness. Um, and we're hoping to look at last year's census when it comes out next year. But, yeah, the thing that struck me was just the size of that gap. And that's why I called the report the territory gap because I think that yeah. it should be something that we, we talk about in Indigenous affairs and people should be aware of. Now, in the report, you blame, quote, extractive political and economic institutions for the poor performance uh, on Indigenous indicators in the Northern Territory. Uh, what do you mean by that? I mean, you're talking about mining. I mean, what, what are extractive political and economic institutions? More, more the opposite. But um, yeah, the um, extractive and inclusive institutions, a lot of viewers will be uh, familiar with those terms. They're actually um, from Asa Moglu and Robertson's Why Nations Fail. And that's basically a new institutional economics look at why some countries are poor and some countries are not poor. And they basically come to the conclusion that it's institutions, it's major institutions that determine that, that direct human activity and govern the long-term um, prosperity of any given community versus another community. And, um, you know, this is stuff like the rule of law and property rights and democracy and all these institutions that enable people to have a stake in the, the political process and enable them to um, keep the, the fruits of their economic participation. And my view is that this is how we should be analysing Indigenous disadvantage in Australia because there are, where Indigenous deprivation is most acute, there are simply a, a different set of institutions from the rest of Australia. And whilst, you know, focusing on education and focusing on 
um, you know, crime and all these things is really important. It, at the end of the day, that underpins the whole thing is that whole different um, institutional setup. Um, so, in, in particular, in the Northern Territory, um, I, I mentioned in the report, um, the, the Land Rights Act and the Land Councils as being extractive institutions. Now, we sort of had a bit of a discussion as we were putting it together. You know, maybe there's there's features that are um, that, that occur in the in, in the NT that are contributing to this, um, and, and they probably do play a role. You know, the, it's probably good to be remote from Sydney as opposed to remote from Darwin. But um, you know, I think that extractive institutions are playing a key role in this. Well, so I want to drill down on this, though. I mean, when, when I hear the word extractive, my ear automatically tunes to extractive industries. And a mm. lot of critics of the you know, Australia's, Australia's policies towards Indigenous peoples in Australia would really focus on the challenges posed by mines and mining. And there are you know, protests all ever seems like every day about mining and resource extraction. So when I hear the word extractive, I automatically attach extractive and industry to it. But you're talking about extractive institutions which is something i gather entirely different so could you explain to us like what is an extractive institution could you could you give us some examples yeah so an extractive institution is an institution that basically means that only a narrow segment of the population get to keep the fruits of their labor and, and okay. control most of the political decision making so if you're you know um it means that the, the incentive for you to go and um, participate in the economy is less um, and it just elevates enterprise and things like that. Um, and, and, in, and the other kind of institution, the good kind of institution is called an inclusive institution because it, it, it includes people and brings into the people into the process. Um, in, in the Northern Territory, for example, an extractive institution um, is, is how traditional owners are able to use their land under the Land Rights Act um, and the power given to the land councils, for an example, that's a that's an extractive institution. So, for example, in, in that um, in that instance, rather than a traditional owner group being given the right to um, use their land as they see fit, which is what most people in the rest of Australia think has happened in the Northern Territory, they actually require the approval of a land council um, before they are able to to use their land um, at, at how they how they want to and um, that, that can be really, well, it quite obviously is really prohibitive. I told a story in the report that I literally checked like 20 times to make sure I had it right because I couldn't believe that it actually had happened. And that was from um, a report by the Aboriginal Investment Group, which is a body up in Darwin, which reported of a, on a traditional owner group which wanted to um, convert a vacated building on their land into a dropping cafe for young people because it had a problem with Antisocial behaviour, and they wanted to um, to have a place for young people to go, and they wanted to vacate their uh, use a vacated building for that. Um, they had to get the approval of the land council to who consulted them to make sure they understood their own proposal. As part of that approval process, they wouldn't approve it unless they um, unless they charge themselves commercial rates of rent. The other people in the community, so not the traditional owners, just the other people living in the community, had to be consulted on it. And the traditional owners had to cover the costs of the land council and it was going to take six months. So that's an extractive institution. Like when, 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 you, when you look at that, it's like little wonder that Indigenous people uh, in that part of the Northern Territory are struggling when to start a very small local community business. This is not a multinational mine or anything like that. That's the kind of thing they have to go through. And so in terms of your question about what, what an extractive institution is, you can see in that instance that... that um, 
the fruits of the labour of that and the decision-making process are being held by a narrow, narrow group in society, not um, people with a, with a normal communal property right. It's funny, I'm, I'm, I'm reminded of something from a very different uh, setting that in the late 20th century in Africa, most agricultural marketing was done uh, by state-appointed marketing boards uh, that uh, came to be called, well, vampire institutions and states that were re relied on them for support were called the you know the vampire state <laughs> in west africa just um you know sucking dry its own people by requiring them to gain certain approvals and of course if you're required to gain certain approvals the people who control those approval processes are able to suck the people dry um do land councils have to be extractive institutions or could they be reformed in such a way that they wouldn't be extractive institutions? That's an interesting question. I mean, there has been reforms made to land councils. Um, what my previous report with the with the CIS was about how um, individual communities had gained um, the right to issue leases over their own townships, so not the surrounding areas where a lot of economic opportunities are held, but but their own townships, which was a significant step forward. And um, my previous report found that actually of the community, and that's called township leasing, and of the communities that had undertaken township leasing, they had um, the rental income they managed to accrue in the period that was brought in was eight times higher than the rental income accrued by communities that had to go through the Central Land Council, um, despite the fact that the population of those communities that had to go through the Central Land Council was much higher. So that that's a reform that's um, that, has, that has helped a little bit, and um, it's been actually tweaked recently by the coalition just prior to losing office where they actually gave um, the communities greater control over those rather than having to go through a government body without getting caught up in all the details. So um, that, that that second reform, it gives communities even more control and, and hopefully more communities in general take that option up. So that, that's a reform that, that could really help. Um, in addition to that, sort of in the negative around the same time that township leasing was brought in at the start of the 20th century, an amendment was made to the Land Rights Act called Section 28A, which gave townships the ability to actually take on some of the um, functions of land councils mm -hmm. um, in terms of issuing leases in the surrounding areas. But that was actually uh, revoked at, at the same time by the coalition at the end of last year, um, and no communities had taken that up, unfortunately, although there were communities that were on record that saying they wanted to. So... That, that's an example of a, a reform that um, would be great to sort of bring back in in some form. Right. Now, I, I'm a bit, I'm still a bit confused here because I, I'm, look, I'm not an expert on Aboriginal affairs. I'm not an expert on uh, Australian constitutional law, and I've never been to the Northern Territory. But I, I kind of got the feeling that there was a whole movement for Aboriginal land rights and that. Uh, traditional owners were accorded some degree of rights over their land. But what I'm hearing from you is that those land rights seem to be relatively empty, that uh, they're having to go through this whole additional layer that is not their ownership rights as owners or traditional owners of the land, but instead is some other mechanism. Uh, first of all, is that correct? And second, how did that come about? I thought I thought Aboriginal Australians were supposed to possess the power to control their own destinies by having their own land rights. Yeah, certainly the, the, the property rights, um, you know, given under ELRA are, are, are pretty weak in a lot of ways. And I think your view is pretty common amongst Australians who aren't 
up in the Northern Territory, just live in places like Sydney and Melbourne and Perth and, and all that. It was sort of the popular belief that land rights gave Indigenous people their land back. And certainly you could look at the Northern Territory and say that um, land rights has given a lot of land back. It's been effective as that mechanism. 50% of the Northern Territory is actually land rights land. But, yeah, and, and, I, and I saw just even by posting my, my report on Facebook, a lot of my friends commented to me that they couldn't believe that actually that was the state of affairs in the Northern Territory. They thought that land rights gave people control back of their land. But um, that hasn't been the case. That it, that it's, there's a lot of difficulty for traditional owners to actually use their land. Um, and the reason why that's taken place, to go to your question, is because of, um, I guess, the ideological preoccupations of the time, this was arguably still today, but of the time around when land rights came through, which was the 60s and 70s, and that was a couple of things. And Helen Hughes, who's a CIS, who used to work at the CIS, who has written about this in Lands of Shame, which is a book that I'm sure a lot of people have read, but if they haven't read it, they should give it a read. She talks about the two assumptions. Firstly, um, the anthropological assumption that Indigenous people would be better off um, living the traditional hunter-gatherer lifestyle, cut off culturally from Australia, and the social socialist um, uh, idea that the uh, public ownership of land was the best way to secure, um, or public ownership was the best way to secure economic well-being, and in particular land. Now, those two assumptions have been disastrous. They've, they've created a situation where people are kind of locked in, on land rights land. They haven't been able to use it that effect, um, that well. And as a result, um, you know, that the worst deprivation in Australia, as this report shows, by some margin, is on that is on that land. So um, it's it's been it's 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 a tragedy and it's not as well known as it probably should be. I mean, I guess what I find so shocking about it is that if people are going to live in remote areas in Australia, obviously they're not going to find traditional employment. They're they're not going to just go down to the uh, employment agency and get placed as a personal assistant or as a factory worker in some large business, right? Because there are no large businesses. So it seems like private business, private ownership and private business are the route to economic success or potential economic success in these remote areas. But I mean, it, I, I just want to make sure I really, that, that I'm not misinterpreting what you're saying. If, if an indigenous person in the Northern Territory or an indigenous family or group that has rights over land wants to farm it, they would have to get permission from another group to be allowed to farm their own land? Yeah, absolutely. They, they, need, um, they would need the permission of the land council if, if, it, you know, if it's land rights land um, and they'd have to be consulted on it by the land council, as I said before. Um, and yeah, it's a very prohibitive process and it hasn't really given people the control that many people think it has. Um, in terms of employment, you know, like it, it's important to say that there are sort of some employment opportunities in remote areas in Australia. That, for example, non-Indigenous people in remote and very remote areas um, don't do a lot better economically than Indigenous people. There, there are there is mining and agriculture, and there are, of course, a lot of government service providers right. that, in large part, are um, uh, staffed by non-Indigenous people. So there are employment opportunities there, but but there could be a lot more. Right. Now, your report uh, focuses on indicators like income, employment and home ownership. But when I usually hear debates about closing the gap, the focus always seems to be health or criminal justice, you know, number of indigenous people in in prison. 
Why did you choose to focus on economic indicators instead of health and social indicators? Yeah, yeah, we, we chose sort of employment and housing indicators and we chose them because that's kind of the building blocks of, you know, an economic life in Australia. And the reason for that, I mean, my belief is, and a lot of people agree with this, you know, health and education, those things are really important, but I feel like um, edu uh, the economic part of that is, is the part that gets the rest of that going. So obviously health and education and, and violence and all those things they get improved by an improved economic situation. It's not to say we shouldn't focus on those areas. Of course, we should. It's just to point out that there are really important flow-ons um, from, from the economic benefit that I've sort of tried to look at. Right. And then uh, get back to land councils. Who, uh, and sorry to jump back and forth, but well, who actually appoints these land councils? Are they elected? How do they get their positions? Land councils are elected by uh, the people living in those areas. Um, but the, the, they're massive bodies covering really large areas. So, for example, I think the Central Land Council covers something like 770,000 square kilometres, 15 different language groups, um, and I think it's 24,000 people. So I think so. There, there are these giant groups there. So there's a council of about 80, 90 people. There's an executive of like half a dozen people, maybe six to nine or something like that. And then so if you want to do something with your land, you have to get the decision-making process through all that. Um, plus there's the bureaucracy and, and the bureaucracy, they're like, you know, little mini governments. So they have bureaucracies dotted around um, various parts of the Northern Territory, often right. a long way from the communities they're making decisions about. Um, and all of that is just, a, is just a really onerous block on people who, as I said, might just want to start a very small business. Right. So, so like a government, the Northern Territory Land Councils are actually quite distant from the people who are electing them? Yeah, in, in many circumstances, that's been a criticism made against the Land Councils. For example, I know the Northern Land Council, I think it was, they, they were reviewed by uh, Deloitte, I think it was, and they, and they found that so 80% or, or 70 to 80% of their staff were located in Darwin, despite most of the people that they're representing not being Are in Are you Darwin. serious? That's so they're not even the people who are on the land councils are not actually living in the remote communities they're serving. For, yeah, frequently not. So they've got they've got um, they've embarked on a regionalization strategy where they have they're trying to you know improve that. But yeah, often often land councils are located. Particularly, I mean, there's some of these communities are tinier than the hundred people and things like that. There's, to to get to your land council, that's yeah a really difficult trip. And, and yeah, they're they're off community bureaucracies making decisions about what happens. Now, now it's elected like a government. It regulates like a government. It seems like it has the pace of action of a of a government. But are land councils government organizations? That is, are they accountable in the way that government organizations are? For example, you know, if I want to get a, make a freedom of information request of the New South Wales government or any even a university, which is not directly a government agency, but it's chartered by the government, I can put a freedom of information request in and I can get the data I want, or at least get a proper refusal. Um, are land councils subject to the same kind of public oversight that a government organization would be? Land councils are certainly not uh, freedom, uh, sub subject to Freedom of Information Act, um, the Act. So, and a lot of Indigenous people have complained about this in the past. There's only really um, sort of government agencies that have particular national security um, things that they have to do are the only other government agencies that really don't have FOI requests for them. 
um, and, and, and land councils are some of them. It's, but they've been accused of, by other Indigenous leaders of operating like a secret society uh, in terms of particularly the anthropological data they hold over who's a traditional owner and who's not a traditional owner, which is, of course, vitally important when you think about the resources that are often present on these lands and the royalties that are paid. Um, it was pointed out by one Indigenous leader. That he said that, you know, they can deny, they can not only deny that they've, the information they need to decide if we get the money or not. They can deny we've got the money in the first place. So that they've been accused by another um, Indigenous leader of operating like a secret society. So it, essentially they're very complicated organisations. They have a lot of money and power. And for some reason they're not subject to FOI requests. When the FOI uh, legislation came in in the early 80s, they were just kind of added to the list of organisations that they wouldn't apply to. It was never really justified. I know the law... Um, Organisation of Australia says that they should be so. Um, so yeah, it is that that is one thing that I think would really help as well when you talk about what what reforms would help the situation up there. I think yeah. FOI requests would, would make a huge difference. But what other forms of scrutiny are they subject to? I mean, a properly functioning democracy doesn't require just a vote. I mean, even Vladimir Putin is voted into office. It, it, it requires institutions that are able to operate as a check on government and to inform the citizenry of what their government is doing. Uh, so, for example, the press. Is the Northern Territory press aggressively reporting on and investigating land councils? Um, I I would say that there are, you know, there are elements of the Northern Territory press that are critical of land councils. Um, I think, <clears throat> excuse me, I know that um, sometimes the Australian is, is not, it's not quite the Northern Territory, but the Australian is critical of land councils. Well, the issue is not are they critical because, you, you know, I, I don't think the role of the press is to be anti-government or anti-institution, but but are they investigating it? Are they doing actual research, investigative journalism, real research? Are they, are they bringing knowledge to ordinary Aboriginal people in the Northern Territory of what their own land councils are doing? Oh, I would say it, it's a mixed bag. Like some, I've looked at the, where I found that information where I've just relayed to you was, was news reports um, in the Northern Territory. Um, I think that some of the press is pretty is pretty um, supportive of them. So uh, I would argue there's a bit of scrutiny, but but not as much as there could be, of course. Excuse me, I'll just have a drink. I've got a frog in my throat here. Well, okay. <clears throat> I'd like to think, you know, what can you do? What can I do? What can our listeners do? But I think probably the more important question is, if Aboriginal people in the Northern Territory are dissatisfied with their own land councils, what can they do? What, what are their avenues for redress to see the reforms they want enacted? The, there's not many. Like the, the, community, the community entity township leasing I spoke about before gives some communities the option to, um, to issue leases around their own townships, but it doesn't give them the opportunity to issue leases around the, the rest of the land that they might hold where there might be quite significant economic opportunities. Um, that ish, that that right, which was in for about 10 or 15 years, was removed by the coalition government last year, sort of barely commented on at all. And, you know, it's unbelievable that a coalition government that's meant to, you know, be to care about property rights and care about, you know, um, the rights of the individual could take that right away from people. So, and this is the Commonwealth coalition government. Correct, yeah, sorry, the coalition coalition. So they're in charge of the, the Land Rights Act. It's a Commonwealth Act. Um, and so, yeah, that, but those two things... The, the 28, Section 28A and Township Leasing give give communities the option of opting out, and they've still got one, but they haven't got they haven't got the other. So, um, in terms of holding the land councils to account, it's a democratic vote. But 
you know, that they've got a body of, you know, 80, 90 people. They might have one person that sort of represents them and the local communities near them. It, it's not that accountable to, to individual communities who might not be happy with what they're doing. Right. So we're about to wrap up in just a minute or two, but if you could propose proper liberal reforms to the current Labour government in Canberra, what sort of small L liberal reforms would you like to see going on in, in the Northern Territory? That's a good question. I think that, um, you know, and sometimes the Labour government has more ability to make economic reforms for, for Indigenous people. Um, I think, well, the things we've talked about, I think FOI, that's an easy one, like FOI uh, transparency okay. of the land councils. And I think bringing in 28A or bring back in 28A or a version of 28A. Um, You'll have to remind us all what that is. So that's that's where people have the opportunity to issue leases, to gain some of that, the, the role of the land council and issue leases in the land around their communities. Okay. Um, okay. And that is, that's all that's saying is that's giving communities the right to opt out. So if you want to stay with the land council, you can stay with the land council. But surely it should be, it should be not that big an issue for if communities want to opt out, they can opt out. That should be a tell to, to the Australian people. And, and that's, yeah, that's what I would be proposing. Peter Gregory, thank you very much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. Uh, thanks also to our producer, Nico Malian. The director of the Center for Independent Studies is Tom Switzer. I'm Salvatore Babonis. Thank you for watching On Liberty.